0: The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the Class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the Class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads and join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Thank you so much, Crystal. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Rainsford Stauffer, freelance writer and author of An Ordinary Age, and I am honored to be your moderator for today's program. Today, we're here in honor of the 50th anniversary of the 26th Amendment, which lowered the voting age from 21 to 18, and the massive impact youth organizing and social activism has had on American politics and progress. I'm so excited to be in conversation today with an extraordinary panel of experts. Tandiwe Abdullah is an organizer and co founder of Black Lives Matter Youth Vanguard. Alex Edgar is a voting rights activist and incoming freshman at UC Berkeley. And finally, Devanch Kaushik is a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon, president of Carnegie Mellon University Graduate Student Assembly and a member of the Students Learn, Students Vote Advisory Board. Before we begin, just another quick reminder to our audience that if you would like to ask these incredible experts a question, please ask it in the chat or comment section. We will try to get through as many questions as possible toward the end of this program. And with that, I am so excited to get started. To sort of frame the conversation, I'm going to ask each of our panelists a little about the specific initiatives they're involved in and what that work has been like. So Tondiwe, I want to start with you and I want to ask about your work with Black Lives Matter Youth Vanguard and your work to end random searches on the LAUSD campuses. What was that like being a young voice in predominantly older rooms and conversations and what have the results been like for you?
1: Yeah, so first of all, thank you for having me. But I'm an original member of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, which is the first chapter of the Black Lives Matter network. And I was 10, no, 9 years old when we were founded. And so, it was a really interesting experience. It was a lot of like single moms um who didn't have, you know, childcare for the children. And so, um it was me and like a couple other kids. And we were, we cared about the work that was being done, but oftentimes, you know, excuse me. A lot of this work is inaccessible for young people, right? There's a high risk of arrest during some actions or what if your parent gets arrested, right? My mom's a single mom. Um, And so I was really just looking for a way for young people to be able to organize while addressing these like safety concerns, right? Um, Understanding that we are some of the most vulnerable folks out here. And so when I created Youth Vanguard, and I tried multiple times, it didn't always work. Um, But when I successfully created the Youth Vanguard, it it was amazing, right? Like we got to finally address these problems and got to get to work addressing things that were happening in our own community. So the random search policy in LAUSD, which is the second largest school district in the entire nation, was really harmful. And I had experienced random searches since I was in sixth grade. It was really just a violation of privacy, of personal space. It was criminalizing and dehumanizing. And it was embarrassing because all of your peers are seeing you have your things all dumped out on the ground. Your teachers are being interrupted during class time. It was just not a great experience. And so we had been fighting this policy for years. And it wasn't until I think it was two years ago when we finally won this policy, but it took years for us to to get to where we were, right? Um, we started when I was 13 years old doing this work and we finally ended, I think when I was um, 15. So it took like, two 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 and a half years and it took a lot of work to get that recognition right to get our documentary and BET local elected officials talking about it but when we finally won it was just the best feeling in the entire world knowing that you know 13 year old me um and our coalition of like middle school and high schoolers like actually made something so impactful that like stretched out not even just the district but like throughout the entire nation right um getting this publicity and getting this work done. It felt amazing.
0: Absolutely incredible. I'm so excited to ask follow-up questions on that. Um, And with that, Devanch, will you tell us about your work with Students Learn, Students Vote, and what kind of direct impact you've seen through that work?
2: Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, and thanks for the question. So uh, I guess I I got involved with SLSB like two years ago uh, when First at uh, the Western Pennsylvania Student Voting Summit uh, in Pittsburgh, and since then, I, I think SLSV has provided amazing resources to students across campuses to organize, re- you know, recruit volunteers, register students to vote, get out the vote, recruit students to be poll workers. Like last year itself, uh, we recruited fifty students uh, from CMU who uh served as poll workers in pennsylvania seventeenth uh you know even though c m u itself is, is in pennsylvania eighteenth uh you know part of pennsylvania seventeenth is in allegheny county uh, and pennsylvania seventeenth is a very competitive district uh it's currently represented by congressman connor lamb uh but it's a very very competitive district uh, when he first won his election it was by a few hundred votes uh you know it ran multiple hours, uh, into the night. So, uh, we, the idea behind that has been to empower students to, uh, empower students, empower staff, uh, at universities, like empower every stakeholder in the process to get as many students involved as, uh, possible in the, you know, in our democratic process. Uh, so that's been, uh, my work over there, uh, you know, uh, and yeah, like, other than that, uh, I think my, mostly my work is in the advocacy space, uh, particularly higher ed advocacy, science policy, and immigration policy. Uh, and you know, I'm happy to chat all about that.
0: Awesome. We're going to get there. Alex, round us off here. I know you also did incredible work last year to get young people turning out in 2020. Can you explain to the audience what you did in Ventura County?
3: Of course, and thank you so much, Rainsford, for introducing and having us here. Uh, so I've I've lived my entire life in Simi Valley, California, uh, which tends to have a history of being uh, a fairly a fairly racist Republican town. Uh, it was the home of the Rodney King trial. Uh, it's kind of known as Copland because of the number of LAPD officers who live here. Uh, so it's kind of it's a very suburban bubble white flight place. Uh, so politics and especially more progressive policies have always kind of been a outside of the norm here. Uh, and me and a good friend of mine, Sonia Niazi, we both have been very passionate about uh, voter registration and getting young people involved in the civic process in any way possible. And throughout high school, we, we tried doing voter registration drives, and we're very lucky to have support from the school and different community groups. Uh, but with COVID, we decided that we wanted to really step it up. Uh, especially with uh, the 2020 election being as important as it was. Uh, So we created a whole voter registration week. Uh, So we created uh, five different events and publicized them to Simi Valley students at all of the local high schools, but also to any other community members. Uh, And we had community groups from Glad LA, and um, the League of Women Voters and the Civic Center uh, to even more local ones like 805 Resistance and Rise Simi Valley, and really just put together a week full of informational events focused on marginalized communities and really focused on how voting is such an important part of who they are and why you really need to think beyond yourself when it comes to voting and think about how to make this, this place we call home a better place Uh, And it really turned out, it was an amazing show of support from the whole community and seeing how we were able to get students from all over and different community members and city council people uh, all to come together to really just focus on getting youth engaged. uh, was a really powerful feeling.
0: Incredible. And thank you all so much again for making time out of your work and out of your days to be with us. Reminder to our audience to drop those questions into the chat or Q&A box. I'm so excited to ask you all more specific questions about your work, but first to kind of frame the conversation, I'm going to ask a couple general ones to the group. So Tandiwe, I'm going to start with you. And I'd love to hear what an assumption people might hold about young voters that is false. And maybe one that's true.
1: Hmm. Um, I would say okay, I would say an assumption that's false is that young voters um are influenced by their parents or are influenced by other authority figures when it comes to voting. Um, I think it was like actually very clear, especially during this recent election, that young voters are often influencing other people right um young voters were influencing their parents were influencing their teachers and their community elders and leaders um it's so interesting. Like whenever I hear there's people who want to like lower the voting age still. And I think that's like a conversation that is um, really important. But whenever I hear that conversation, like come up, there's always someone who's like, Oh, well, young people, it shouldn't go any lower because then your parents will control how you vote. And I just, I simply just don't think that's true. Um, yeah. And then one thing that I do think is true, um, is that young people don't find hope in voting. And I think it's true to a certain extent, right? Like I think especially Gen Z um, and the generations to come are more imaginative when it comes to like true transformative change, right? Um, I think we have a, a understanding that voting is a tool of change, but it is not like all that you need to be doing. And so um, when people say that like young people aren't motivated to vote or don't see the point in voting, It's not really true. It's just like we, I think we see beyond voting, right? Like what does direct action have to do with change, true transformative change? What does like, you know, um, door knocking, canvassing, um, showing up at your elected officials offices, like disrupting. I think we see a lot of other different paths to change other than voting.
0: I love that. Devanch, do you want to go next and tell us an assumption that's false, an assumption that's true about young voters?
2: Sure. Uh, I think I hold a slightly different view from that. Uh, one thing that I think is definitely false, uh, to which I agree with Kandiwe uh, on, is that, yeah, like there's a there's an assumption that young voters are generally apathetic. Uh, you know, they don't really care about things or. But I don't think that's true. Uh I think they care about things they want to have their voices heard i think uh you know we've seen how young voters can be persistent on a lot of issues uh and from personal experience i tell you like people who have not been engaged in any advocacy work before when you give them the platform they bounce on it like they take it and they make the most out of it uh you know and I, like i've seen that here in pittsburgh i've seen that on other campuses uh and i think that's that's one assumption that's definitely false uh one assumption that's true uh i think for sure uh persistence uh that young voters or young activists are you know uh, they they persist uh even under failure uh you know i i wouldn't say that they don't have Uh, you know, much hopes, uh, with regards to voting. Uh, I think I've, I've seen like a lot of different people, uh, you know, it's, it's not uniform, uh, but I've seen a lot of people who look forward to that day, look forward to casting their vote, look forward to, you know, getting rid of someone or bringing someone in. Right. Uh, we organized, uh, this town hall at Carnegie Mellon, uh, and it was full of students. Uh, we organized uh, a primary debate for Pennsylvania governor uh, in 2018 at, on Carnegie Mellon campus. And it was full of students. Uh, no, I think students are generally very enthusiastic about the political process. Uh, they are just, you know, they need the right platforms uh, in some cases, which they are being deprived of uh, by some powerful
3: factions.
0: Such great points. And Alex, do you want to finish us off for this one?
3: Yeah, I'd say one that is, I think is false is that young people like are really just influenced by social media, by whatever is really popular in the world when it comes to their voting. Because I can't tell you the number of times I've heard from adults, you know, once you're in the real world, you'll see, you know, your your views will change once you've actually lived life. And I really think that's just a huge misconception that so many people have because, you know, with access to social media and access to the internet, like we are more informed as like Gen Gen Z is more informed about the issues that we're passionate about than truly pretty much any other generation because we have every fact, everything at at our fingertips. We hear about the issues as they're happening. Uh, So I think that's definitely a misconception that, that we just are influenced by the events, when in reality it's that we just are so much more informed about what's going on, which is why we are able to form such strong beliefs about things. And then one thing I'd say is kind of true is that uh, the, that Gen Z tends to be less enthusiastic about voting. Uh, and I think kind of as Tendiwe was saying is that people don't always connect specifically with voting, but they do connect with wanting to see the change. Uh, Whether it's feeling like neither party really represents them, because that's something I know a lot of people, just neither party is having candidates that really fit their views, fit the type of people that they want in elected offices, Uh, or it's that they just don't think the democratic process is working in the way it should. And think, as Tendi was saying also, the direct action is the way to go, because that is the way to truly change people's minds. So. That, that I think is a, is a big kind of true conception.
0: We're looking forward to diving into all of this and more over the course of our panel and to our panelists. If you'd like to respond to something a fellow panelist says, please feel free to be in conversation with each other as well as with me and with our audience watching Tandiwe, I want to go back to you and bring up some things that you discussed in your initial answer, talking about being very young and protesting, safety concerns, parents getting arrested, parents on the front lines. And it made me think about this idea of young people participating, which is the talking point we hear a lot. How are we going to get young people to participate, to engage? I want to ask you whether you think there's a difference between that participation element and young people leading, and where should we, where we should be falling on the idea of young people not just participating and engaging, but in leadership roles?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, one thing that I'll say is that, yes, I love the idea of young people in leadership, but I also kind of want to push back on the idea that you know every young person needs to be a leader. Um, I I love the conversation that we're beginning to have like as a society right where like young people are being shut out of like like government jobs political jobs like just positions that were usually being held by like um older people um but when it comes to like organizing spaces right and being on the front lines young people don't need to be leaders all the time right we like i think it's really important that participation aspects comes before leadership um We saw a lot with the protests, Uh, what was that, last summer, wow. Time is really flying. Um, with the protests last summer, there were a lot of young people leading protests who didn't know what they were doing. And it's not that you know young people aren't capable of knowing what they're doing, but it's important that you have the experience and that you take the wisdom from our elders and from past movements. Right, people who have done this before. We have access to, you know, my grandma was a part of the civil rights movement. Right, my grandfather was a part of the student athletes protests at Berkeley. Um, and so these are resources. These are tools for us to become even better leaders when it is time for us to take these positions. And so um, I do think that the young people who are exposed to being on the front lines, the children of those like single mothers, I do think that we make great leaders and that we can help empower other young people to become leaders as well. But just making sure that like you don't need to be a leader right away. Like it's important that we get that, edu- that education aspect um, Before we jump into these roles, right, so that we can truly like embody all of the qualities that is needed of us.
0: I think that that's such an incredible and important point. And I want to stay on it for a minute before we move on. I want to open it up to all of you who might have thoughts on this, because what you have described so perfectly about this idea of not having to be a leader right away, about being able to learn from elders, I want to ask what you all think about a term I hear a lot, especially in the media, especially about politics, this idea of the generation wars is that a thing we should even be focusing on in terms of the political divide, getting young people to turn out? Or is this something that's overblown?
3: I'd love to jump in and answer this one. Give give Tendiway a break from uh, having to go first. Uh, I, I really think it, even if you're on you know TikTok, social media, there's always like, uh, oh, this generation's beefing with this, you know, the okay boomer, right? It, it's a constant kind of like joking going around. But I, I really think the idea of a generation war it is kind of just an overblown statement because i feel there's definitely a a strong like difference in how the generations vote and then there's a difference in how the generations feel on issues it's you know each generation we see there's more and more progressive views more and more kind of beliefs that are changing and that's usually how it goes as times go on you know the the general beliefs of the the country change uh, but i think it's it's less that there's a kind of fight between the generations. But more of that, there, there's just a difference in ideas. And it's it's really hard to change someone's viewpoints when they've had them for the past 60 years of their life. And I think that definitely causes problems when you have young people who want to be taking on the next step. They want to be really leading and pushing forward in whatever it's the workforce, with politics, whatever it may be, uh, and kind of being combated with people who Want things to stay at the status quo because that's what's worked for them, and in really trying to find a way to you know break down that barrier and really push through uh, to try to make more spaces for Gen Z, millennials, the younger generations to kind of be more involved in all aspects of life. Right.
2: Uh, someone once asked me this question, and uh, what like we didn't really. Have a really good answer at the time, but when we were talking afterwards, uh, you know, we were traveling, and this this just came up that well, who were the last two people standing in the Democratic primaries? Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. They're from the same generation. They have different ideas. Where is the generation war? Uh, like, you know, um, you know, I I think the whole idea of "Quote unquote generation war" is like distracting from the real issues uh, of who's getting impacted and who's not, uh, because you know more often than not the impacts of bad policies span generations, uh, and it's you know how to define a generation is another thing, but uh, they they often do uh, you know. For some people, I might be from an older generation now. That uh, you know, I, I was just at the bank today, and I was like, "Well, uh, do you do you open a new student account?" And they were like, "How old are you?" And I said, "I'm 25." Well, sorry, sir, we only open college accounts for 18 to 24 years old. So that happened. Uh, I'm now a part of older generation. <laughs> I, but you know, I, I presumably uh, will be impacted the same way that an e-way or you know. Uh, Alex will be impacted by various policies. Uh, So I I just think that the focus should be on how a policy impacts people uh, rather than, you know, oh, is it favoring one section of the society that's 65 years or older? Uh, So maybe we should have another policy that favors people who are 18 years or younger. Uh, I, I don't think that's the over here
1: is it okay if i say like something else really quick of course um deviance brought up like such a good point when you were talking about like the last two people standing in the democratic um primaries right like uh biden and bernie right and i think that when we're talking about these like generation wars it's so important that we like bring up that these generalizations of these generations, it's like, it's harmful, right? Like we assume, or like we have a a belief that folks who are like the boomers are so conservative and unwilling to change and unwilling to do work because they're overrepresented in politics and in the media. And like, you know, the people who have those beliefs, right? Sorry, they are overrepresented in these spaces of power. But like, that generation also has folks from the black power movement, right? You know, Bernie Sanders is like a social Democrat and Biden did the like crime bill. So there's people who are varying different political beliefs in every generation. And, um, when we're talking about like the, the, generation wars it can become a problem um like touching back to what i said before but it can become a problem because like we have folks who are like living resources like living history who we need to be talking to who are part of these different generations and because like they're like people who have so maybe narrow-minded, maybe like, you know, not wanting to change type of beliefs in politics and in like, you know, people, places of power, we don't believe that we can like, I don't know, I guess like talk to these living records of history and um, folks who can like really empower us to do good work. And so, yeah, sorry for talking too much.
0: No, this is fantastic. Reminder to our audience members, drop your questions into the Q&A and chat. Divian, I want to stay with you and I want to talk about your advocacy work on specific issues, because one of the things I've heard about a lot is that young people are more likely to get behind a specific issue rather than necessary it necessarily any single politician or even political party. So how can we bring young people to the ballot box by focusing on the issues themselves?
2: That's an amazing question that like, it's so close to home. Uh, One of the things that we started at Carnegie Mellon in in particular was, uh, you know, so all these organizations, they reach out to various candidates who are running for office. They ask them, Hey, well, where do you stand on this particular issue? You know, uh, League of Women Voters creates its own questionnaire. Planned Parenthood creates its own questionnaire. The conservation coalition creates its own questionnaire. Some conservative uh, organizations create their own you know so you look at those and you see that none of those are actually touching upon you know issues that students might be facing even though like students are an increasingly large blog of uh, voters and when they do touch on those issues they're very like focused or very generalized issues like, okay, well, you know, uh, what about my student loans? And when you talk about that, uh, you know, that becomes a very national issue. S- students are like, I'm gonna go with whoever's like, you know, whoever is going to get rid of sixty thousand dollars that I owe right now. And that's you know, they're they're not thinking that, you know, I'm going to support Biden or I'm going to support Bernie, they're like, is this person going to reduce my debt or not? That's the issue they care about. So what we started doing at the state and local level, reaching out to candidates with questions specific to student needs, like at the city level, reaching out to all candidates running for city council, county council, mayor, about landlord-tenant issues, because That apparently is the biggest thing uh, when students are renting apartments uh, because of the power dynamic, Uh, you know, minimum occupancy limits, uh, things like food insecurity. Uh, When you look at Carnegie Mellon, it seems like, okay, well, you know, it's uh, such a big school. It's, uh, you know, the tuition is so high and stuff. uh, There, you know, people should be able to afford it, uh, which is why they might be going there. But 20% of CME students are face moderate to severe levels of food insecurity. You know, uh, Students get behind that thing. So regardless of who is running, if there's someone who's catering to their need, uh, they want to know about that. So we sent out these questionnaires to everyone who was running for city council, county council, state legislature, governor, et cetera and asked what they thought about these issues, then followed up a year later, and students were so excited to share the kinds of issues they wanted to bring up. Uh, Then we started partnering with local media outlets as well to raise some issues, like uh, we recently had a student loan series uh, in a local nonprofit uh, media outlet. We had uh, another media outlet cover international students in Pittsburgh, Uh, you know, what, They were going through, Uh, you know, since I was mentioning this, uh, like last year when the Trump administration uh, decided to deport all international students who would not take classes in person, domestic students reached out to me that they wanted to register people to vote because how passionate they were to support their fellow students who could not vote because they were behind that issue they were not compelled to register to vote because you know uh they wanted to get rid of someone or bring someone in uh that they thought they were doing by being registered themselves but they wanted to register other people so that they could tell other people what impact it is having on them and their friends so i think yes uh you know students get behind issues more than they get behind politicians i personally engage in a lot of nonpartisan advocacy on the Hill. Uh, I have worked with Republicans and Democrats. Uh, you know, if there's a hardcore conservative Republican who wants to, uh, you know, bring uh, a pathway to citizenship for DACA students, I would work with them. Uh, I don't care uh, where they come from, where you know, uh, what their political background is. Uh, it's It's just the way of getting things done, I think.
0: Amazing. And relatedly, Alex, I want to hear about how you registered students to vote, which we know you did virtually last year. And so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit with our audience about how we make the voter registration process itself more accessible to younger voters.
3: Yeah, so th- this is something I think is super, super big and important step that we as a country need to take. Because voting and voter registration, it, it's, it's more of like a chore to do. It's something that you have to work for rather than what it should be. It should be something that everyone is a part of, that everyone is just automatically doing. I know in Sweden, you know, they have automatic voter registration for all of their citizens. And their, voter, their voting rate is so much higher because it's no longer having this obstacle in your way. You know, voting voting is a right. we want you know everyone says we want everyone voting. we want you know American citizens to be involved with the process but by by having this obstacle of having to sign yourself up it, it just creates an unnecessary step and we've seen with voter ID laws and other restrictions, especially in the wake of the 2020 election with all of these laws passed in states that people aren't trying to make it easier to vote. And that is something that hurts minority voters, ho- hurts uh, disenfranchised different communities, uh, but it also really hurts young voters, especially when you have a voter who's off in college and you know, they have to vote in their hometown, their home state. When you have to go through all of these steps to get your voting, get to do the absentee and do all these hoops, you know, every November they're going to probably be at school. So if they're not locally near home, you're having an entire group of students, an entire group of the voting population who just don't have the same access, the same ability as someone who's, you know, working at a job and they're 50 years old and can easily have an absentee ballot shipped to their house or easily go to their local uh, polling station because they have the time, they have the ability. Uh, so I really think uh, the, the For the People Act is truly what right now, like the biggest, most important piece of legislation when it comes to voting, Uh, because just everything included there from just modernizing the voter registration process with automatic voter registration, the same day and online voter registration, kind of making those systems better. Because I know when we did it online, it's, it's a whole process of having to walk people through You know, you have to check off this box, and oh, you know, make sure you write the party preference or no party preference, and then having to validate with a signature or with your ID, which is something that's online is a little bit harder to do. They have to send you the thing to sign and submit back. So, really, making voting more accessible is really the best way to get more people to vote, because, like, like we were saying the especially gen z is really passionate about issues they're really passionate about being involved and really making a difference but you know these these laws these different rules that are set in place just make it so much more challenging than necessary like like we saw that there wasn't some widespread fraud with the election there wasn't widespread problems with it but there were people who were unable to vote and unable to do it because of things put in place to stop it you know, So it, it's it's about taking down these unnecessary barricades and really opening up the process so that young people, so disenfranchised, different communities really can re, re-engage with the civic process.
0: Amazing. We've only got a few minutes left before our audience Q&A, but I want to see if I can get in two more questions to our incredible panelists here. According to recent reporting, White House officials and allies of President Joe Biden have expressed to voting rights groups that they can out-organize voter suppression. Um, and so to this panel, I want to ask what you feel the unique challenges are to young people voting. What are the barriers keeping them out? And what do we need to do to lower those barriers and bring them in? Tandiwe, do you want to take us away on this one?
1: Yeah, I mean... I'm not able to vote yet in a couple months I will be um but I just remember like last November it was that last November sorry like time since the pandemic is just so crazy to me um <laughs> during the last election um I kept seeing things on the news about like how college students weren't able to like vote because their polling places shut down there's only like to polling stations on their campus. People were lined up at like 9 PM, right? So there's that, but then then also taking in the different like racial demographics and like socioeconomic status. Um, I know folks in my own community, like who didn't vote simply because they would have to like travel for miles to find a polling place. And like, there is like, there's one polling place in my area in South LA where people come from all different, South LA is big, like LA as a city is really big, but people are coming from all over South LA to this one polling place. And it's a small polling place. And like, you know, there's not a lot of time that young folks have, you got to work, you got to pay off those student loans. And so I think it's also like, I easily get frustrated. I know a lot of other young people do. I'm not going to wait in line for hours and hours and hours just to vote when I know that my vote might potentially not even mean anything, right? So it's like, I think there's just a lot of frustration about all of the different barriers, like Alex was saying, um, when it comes to not only like registering, but like actually when it comes time to do it, it's like, okay, do I really, am I really going to do all this when I could be, you know, at work right now or when I could be at school or doing something that seems more like important at the time. So, yeah.
0: Devinch, do you want to chime in here on where uh, this voter suppression comes from and what we should do about I it?
2: Have a, I have a <laughs> very long response to this. <laughs> First, uh, you know, please feel free to, otherwise, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, well, uh, so I, I think, you know, young people have you know, on college campuses and com- in communities, like they have been doing extraordinary work to lead movements of democratic participation uh, and their work, yes, it is helping transform our democracy for the better. But when considering this, you know, particularly going back to the comment that reportedly was made by a White House aide, you know, so when you're considering uh, voter suppression or the 26th Amendment as well, right, it's it's important to think uh, not of it in a vacuum, as something off and buy for young voters only. Uh, it is like one in a long line of rights expansions uh, for various Americans who were excluded from the democratic process at the country's onset. Uh, the amendment came about during the civil rights and the anti-war movements, and uh, after the women's suffrage movements of the early twentieth century. So you know, throughout the country's history, there have been various powerful factions, as I was mentioning earlier, like who have been working to establish a second class of citizenry. At first, it was everyone except land owning white men. Then it was women and minorities, and then only minorities. Yeah, you know, the target keeps shifting. You cannot out organize that. But the intention is always the same, that par for some and disenfranchisement for others. Uh, so when you think of the 26th Amendment, which, you know, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of it, it's not just a legal document, it's a promise. Uh, so, you know, many of the legal and psychological barriers to youth suffrage that existed before the 26th Amendment still exist, they existed right after the 25th, 26th Amendment as well, and So do many new ones. Uh, So fulfilling that promise requires constant work, not just from organizing perspective, but from policy-making perspective. You know, you think of it, the 14th Amendment was passed, uh, and the idea was that we're going to provide equal protection to everyone. Uh, But that wasn't enough. They had to bring in the 15th Amendment to provide uh, voting rights to black people, then the 19th Amendment to provide voting rights to women. 26th amendment to provide voting rights to everyone above the age of 18 Like, it's not something you can out organize it has to be attacked from a policy making perspective uh so like that's that's my response to whoever came up with that line
3: i definitely i'd have to agree with what both of them just said but also to kind of add on something that hasn't been mentioned so far uh, but I think is really important is just the way that the current uh, voting process in the electoral college causes so much voter disenfranchisement, because you take a look at, you know, Gen Z, right? The most Gen Z voters are college students and college towns, depending on, you know, where in the country, what school they are, tend to lean heavily one way or the other. They're either, you know, a very democratic place, as most uh, a majority of colleges tend to be. Or it's a very Republican place. And when you have something like the Electoral College that, that really says when when we're voting, when all this, like it, it's not, it's not every vote matters as much. It's more, you know, if you live in a state that is red and is gonna go red, what's the point of voting? Like you you know from the offset that your vote may show some support, that you know, maybe there's some tides changing in your state. But if you know the outcome of the election, why would you skip work to go vote? Why why would you stop studying for your upcoming final or something when you know ultimately it doesn't matter? And I mean, even if you are part of the majority in a state, like, you know, I live in California. You know, California pretty much is always going to vote blue. So if if you're a college student, if you're, you know, first uh, first out of college starting your new job, like... If you're if you're a Democrat and you know, you know, your your CA district, you know, is gonna be fine, like I'm going to Berkeley, Barbara Lee won with ninety percent of the vote. Like she she was doing fine there. Like if you know your vote isn't gonna really change anything, it, it's such it's such a problem with actually getting people to want to do it, to actually want to go out of their way to vote if they feel like it doesn't matter in the first place. So I know I'm a big proponent that the Electoral College is a very antiquated system that just causes further disenfranchisement, um, but definitely agreeing with what everyone was saying that you know uh, just organizing when the policies just don't work for the people. You know, we, we tend to always go to this very traditionalist view of this is what was written. You know This is what the law says when the law was written 100 plus years ago. And, and the laws don't represent the society we live in today, yet we're judging our lives based off of these people who aren't alive anymore. I um, mean, I really think trying to work around the laws when we should, as the people, have the power to change the laws, to make a, a better system for ourselves, is kind of a ridiculous notion. Uh, so I, I I got something there. You uh,
2: know, I think there's a huge emphasis in the younger voting generation Uh, and I'm saying younger as if I'm old, but no, sorry, I'm not. Uh, uh, But you know, uh, that the presidential election is the most important election. It is important. It is probably the most important as well, yes. But there are equally as important elections happening in your local jurisdictions where the electoral college isn't at play, you know. Uh, last election cycle, we saw a lot of progressive DAs being elected, uh, who are, you know, working to decriminalize their jurisdictions. Uh, we saw a lot of progressive mayors being elected. We saw a lot of like, you know, amazing people who do not have the traditional political background being elected at the local and state level who can influence so much change. Like if someone says that, you know, their vote doesn't matter or, you know, they think their vote doesn't matter, I'll tell you, there's a, a neighborhood right next to Pittsburgh, neighborhood of Braddock, right? Uh, or township, well, like, you know, the former mayor is the current lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. He won his first election as the mayor of Braddock by one vote. He's the current lieutenant governor. He's running for the Democratic nomination to the U.S. Senate. And, you know, the point about that is, like, you have to cast your vote. Uh, You know, I agree, like, there are incredible obstacles. uh, But, you know, I, I just think there are too many important elections down ballot that go unnoticed or people think that they're not super important. The other thing I wanted to say, uh, like, to the part about out-organizing, there's a pretty good example just from the last election cycle. Uh, Texas, Missouri, Alaska, I think, were three states who implemented laws, uh, which said that we're going to automatically mail absentee ballots to anyone over 60 or 65 uh, of age. Uh, and so youth voting rights activists were like well that violates the 26th amendment because the 26th amendment not just guarantees the right to vote to anyone above the age of 18 but it also says it shall not be a prides or you know it uh, shall not put any obstacles to that and so that was essentially age discrimination in voting because you know missouri had this thing that if you're a student and you want to vote in missouri then you got to request an absentee with excuse and you have to have your Ballot notarized. Good luck finding a notary first of all. But uh, people filed challenges to those in courts. Uh, a Texas court granted an injunction to the Texas policy that yeah, it does violate the Twenty Sixth Amendment. The Fifth Circuit uh, granted a stay on that injunction, and the Supreme Court denied hearing the case altogether. So basically, that policy went into effect. Uh, you know, so while it may seem that the laws were out there to make it easier for people to vote, they were actually there to make it harder for people to vote. Uh, you know. And the effect was seen throughout uh, because a lot of students could not vote home because of these policies. Uh, and so like, you can't out-organize that. Uh, and whoever has the idea that you can out-organize that, I like to grab a cup of coffee.
0: This is incredible. We only have a couple minutes before we transition to audience Q&A, but I want to end on a forward-looking question. Uh, It's intentionally broad because there are a lot of answers to this one from lowering the voting age to broadening how we think about civic education and civic engagement in general. But I want to ask our panelists What changes you would make right now, not to just make voting more accessible to younger people, but to pull them into the political and social processes and policies that impact their day-to-day lives? Tandiwe, do you want to take it away?
1: I always get stuck with the hard questions first. Um, I don't know. I mean, okay. Well, I definitely think that... I definitely would want to lower the voting age more, um, especially for local elections. I think that people in high school should be able to vote in local elections period. Um, but I also think that we need to do better when it comes to like voter education, um, the history of voting, right. We don't like, it's so weird to me. I was not taught that in high school. Like I didn't, know any of that. I had to learn on my own. Um and also like when we're talking about the history of this stuff, we need to come at it from like a wide variety of different angles, right? So like, okay, if we want to talk about how women got the right to vote, okay, well, how was that influenced by the abolitionist struggle, right? Like how was that influenced by black folks? How did it sell out black folks? Like, um how did when black folks finally got all our full rights to vote? How did it empower other people of color? And so, like, all of these different conversations are so important because it not only empowers us to vote, but it empowers us to do other things as well, right? So, like, those direct actions that we were talking about, showing up to your elected officials' offices and pressuring them, um, having all of this, like, yeah, having all the historical context and seeing things from, like, a wide, a wider scope, I think, would help us um, carry on this, like, radical tradition of, like putting policy into place and um, changing things.
0: I think that was an incredible answer. Alex, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I, I have to agree with Fendiway like 100%. I recently did some work with a group called the uh, Educating for American Democracy Initiative. Uh, and what they're working on right now, and it's a whole national, nationwide effort, it is really just to get civics and civic education to be involved K through 12 because I, I 100% agree i did not like have an interaction in school really about civics until my ap gov class like like that is that in my opinion should not be the first time you really are introduced to voting and what it means to be a civic engaged person what it means to be a citizen like this is a conversation we should be having our whole lives like we are all american citizens like voting is something that everyone will have access to eventually like it is always going to be there at 18 so i think it is so so important to start introducing to even young kids who don't maybe don't have the full understanding of what it means to vote and really starting to work them towards you know this is what it means and this is why it's so important because if we are if we're introducing these concepts before they're 17 before they're 18 and that's like literally the next thing they're doing. And like, it's being thrown at them. If we start introducing this way earlier, it, it creates an idea that it's it's more of a normal thing, that, that it's something that everyone should be doing and that it, it we kind of would be able to make it more commonplace for especially younger people to just be involved and to really understand what's going on rather than the way I feel it is now is that you have People like Tendiwe, who are you know creating their own movements, creating their their activism and getting involved with organizations, but that's outside of school. That's outside of our the place that we're, we're all going. We're all getting an education, uh, but it's really about making that education fit for us as citizens, not just learners. Okay. Uh that's that's a tough act to follow. But uh I think I agree with everything
2: that everything that's been said. Uh I think there There are a couple additional points that I'd add. One thing is how the universities see their obligation under the Higher education act. you know currently the universities uh have to work like well technically they have to work to register students you know make sure students have the correct information about elections et cetera like the, if they want to receive federal funding uh how most universities actually go about that is they consider it just checking a box right they need to be taking their commitments more seriously uh, you know the directives need to be coming from top down, not handed to one staff member who's like you know who reports to seven people between them and the president of the university right so that's one thing that the universities could do, but the other thing. That uh, one thing that I would lo- like to emphasize that Alex has mentioned about civics education, you know, uh, how many people know, you know, what uh, U.S. was, you know, what the idea behind America was. Like, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, one of the grievances that the founders had with King George was that he was not allowing people to uh, naturalize as American citizens. And you look at people today, they're actively fighting to make sure that people cannot naturalize, right? Like, So, you know, when the US, for instance, when it first implemented naturalization law in 1790, it was among the most open the world had ever seen. And the founders had never intended the US to be a nation defined by its borders close to outsiders. So America was to them an idea that outsiders could opt into and make their own and become a part of. And that's something like, for instance, New York is taking, uh, steps in like that is a direction that New York is taking steps in right now. Uh, Maryland, Al- presumably, uh, you know, the presumed mayor, uh, Eric Adams has endorsed, a council, uh, pro- a bill in the city council that would allow non-citizens to vote in state and local elections, uh. And D.C. is trying to do the same thing. So when you look at these things, you know, uh, you have to look at it from a very holistic perspective. I think the 14th and the 19th Amendments explicitly expanded the notion of, you know, voting rights to uh, many Americans. And so when the 14th, 15th and 19th. So when we talk about the 26th Amendment, uh, what we are really talking about is fulfilling that vision of America as expressed by its founders and the founding documents. So, you know. There's this thing uh, in the Ask Every Student program uh, that SLSB has, which incorporates one-on-one conversations about voting into college and university processes that touch on every student. So, you know, bringing students, uh, like, having kind of their get-go into the citizenry, like, yes, you know, what do you need to know? What is this? What? Are you missing out on in terms of your civic education or things like that? So I think uh, not just involving students in civic participation or telling them about uh, what the nation's history is with regards to voting or other aspects. I, I think it's it's important to think of it in a broader holistic viewpoint, as Tanibe mentioned. Uh, you know, how has the history evolved around this situation? Like, ironically, uh, Georgia is the battle is ground zero for voter suppression today. But in 1943, Georgia was the first state to lower voting age to 18 for state and local elections. Uh, So, you know, we need to think of it from a very holistic viewpoint, how this is related to, you know, the power dynamics that some people want to establish a second class of citizenry. and How do we need to attack that? And, uh, you know, I remember this quote that, Well, not the exact quote, but when Bobby Kennedy went to University of Kentucky, uh, he said, if you're not producing radicals, then you're not doing your job. That's not exactly what he said, but that's the gist of it. So universities need to take more initiative.
0: This is incredible. We have so many interesting audience questions here, which I think is a testament to the brilliance of our panelists. I want to start by asking one that is directed to all of you as a group. So whoever has strong feelings, go first, and we'll hear from everybody. The question is, how did you start seeing yourself as leaders in this space? Did you ever struggle with imposter syndrome?
2: I can go. <laughs> I still don't see myself as a leader. though. I think uh, One thing is that, you know, uh, that's something that Tandiwe mentioned earlier, that not everybody has to be a leader, right? Uh, But at the same time, I view this slightly differently. Everybody who's participating is a leader in the process. Uh, You know, it takes a lot of commitment to be there to participate. Uh, You know, if you are participating in civic action, you are a leader to your peers, to your family to your friends who will see you and get inspired. So I don't think there's anything over here to feel imposter syndrome. Like I'm sitting in this room with two amazing voting rights activists who've presumably done more work than I've ever done. And I am not feeling imposter imposter syndrome. So, you know, just, just take my cue, Uh, try something. If you fail, you fail. Uh, otherwise, you get to sit on such amazing panels.
3: I'd say for me, I think when it comes to just getting involved with anything when it comes to politics, is that it's not, not just like a, a race to the top. Like the whole goal of being involved in the political process isn't really for personal gain. And if that's what it is for anyone, you know, to kind of take a step back and rethink your your reasons for it. Like, in reality, we're all on our own path. We're all taking our own steps to reach whatever goals we have for what we want to see from our from our community, from our state, from our country. And it, it's something, it's easy to look at other people, whether they're your age or older, and say, I want to be that or why am I not there yet? Uh, but in reality, just like, take a step back, look at yourself and realize that you're at whatever step on your path to becoming the best, the best activist, the best uh, citizen that you can be, and really just focusing on trying to be the best for yourself and not the best in comparison to others.
1: I think I still struggle with imposter syndrome, um, especially, you know, I, it was a big culture shock for me, like even going from my uh, elementary school to like my high school. And um, like going from all black space to like a predominantly white space I remember after I finished my senior year I was like I don't even know what my own ve- my own voice sounds like anymore <laughs> And I, you know spending that year at home I finally got to like hear myself and I was like wow this is what I sound like right because I'm so used to code switching and um You know, in in the advocacy space, too, I noticed that a lot, right? Doing um, gun violence prevention work with March for Our Lives. Um, That space is not a space full of people who look like me, right? Doing voting stuff, right? There's not a lot of people who look like me, um, who sound like me. Um, And so usually I don't. There have been times, a lot of times, when I didn't show up as my most authentic self and it took me a long time to realize like showing up as your authentic self is what drives change and um is what really like shifts things right um people aren't used to hearing different different perspectives um and so if you are constantly shifting who you are to suit the energy of the space it's not it's not doing anything you're just keeping you're playing a part and this like status quo right but we're trying to shift that so coming to terms with that and really just telling myself like i deserve to be here and i deserve to be who i am in this space and if people are not comfortable with that then it's not my problem um i keep having to like say that over and over in my head as like a mantra but um it's working so far so
0: yeah Amazing. And we have another audience question here for all of our panelists. It reads, how can we change the stigma of youth voters being unknowledgeable when in actuality they can be just as knowledgeable and further bring a new, fresh view to electoral politics? Alex, it looks like you've got thoughts. Do you want to jump in there?
3: I feel like that's a really tough one because it's really asking how can we change a a large group of people's minds about something that they just don't want to see. Because I think as I mentioned before, when we were talking about like a misconception or one that was true is that uh, older generations who don't have the same understanding of social media, the same understanding of the internet, like Gen Z, we grew up with the internet. Like I've, we've had that for pretty much our whole lives. So it's a very different dynamic that we have with uh, like online spaces compared to older generations um even millennials just there's a definite difference in how we interact with it so i think it's really hard to convince them that you know we we aren't just copies of the influencers we see online we're not just copies of you know the environments we're in that you know we really are using these opportunities using these resources to better ourselves and to better our understanding of things Uh, I know even just online, like seeing people talk about wanting to read theory and trying to figure out, you know, how can I not just understand the current state of things, but understand what, what really happened that got us to this place and why are things the way they are? Uh, And I think it's not really something that can easily be said as like, this is a way of showing everyone that young people are smart, they are educated and they deserve their spot, you know, at the table as more just by more and more Gen Z and other generations getting involved and really just showing rather than telling, I think is the the really only way it'll work. Uh, I think my,
2: if I had to give a one line answer to this, I would say it was a 32 year old Thomas Jefferson who stood up and said all men are created equal uh, in a company of old people, right? Well, No offense to old people, like, but you know, it takes. People doubted him, uh, right? But he persisted. Uh, You do the work, rather than, uh, you know, optimizing a second-order objective of convincing someone. I think that's where I come from. Uh, I think, like, you know, you are one of many. It's a you know, uh, there's there's the danger of fatality that a lot of people come with, uh, come up with that. You know, okay, maybe I'll fail, uh, but you know, once you get over that, and you know, not to spam people with too many Bobby Kennedy quotes, uh, but you know, when he went to University of Cape Town, uh, I think 1960s sometime, he said one thing that you know, thousands of Peace Corps volunteers are making a difference in isolated villages and city slums of. Dozens of countries, thousands of unknown men and women in Europe resisted the occupations of Nazis. Uh, so, it is from numberless diverse acts of courage uh, that the belief that human history is thus shaped. Uh, right? And each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lives of others uh, or strikes out against injustice, uh, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from like million different centers of energy uh, and daring those ripples, they build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. So, you know, uh, regardless of whether you feel like you've convinced someone or not, once you stand up for that ideal, along with the thousands of others who are standing up with you or who will eventually stand up with you, like that will take down the walls that you're standing up against. Uh, so I, I come from that perspective that I do not really uh, think that I, I want to optimize the second order objective. Uh, uh, I think people are more convinced by the work than, uh, you know, anything else. And what
1: was the question again? It was about young people being uneducated.
0: Yes, it was how we change the stigma of youth voters being unknowledgeable when in reality they bring a new, fresh view to electoral politics.
1: Okay. Um, I think, well, first and foremost, we have to shift the conversation about like knowledge. Right. Um, I think what a piece of the conversation that hasn't really been talked about as much is like, there's a lot of, I I don't want to say classism, but like intellectual elitism that happens in these spaces. Right. And, you know, when we're talking about young people not being knowledgeable um, and having fresh perspectives, you can still have the fresh perspectives, right. Without knowing all the fancy words that are what all, what it all means. Right. And so, I mean, maybe I'm just like imposing my own personal experiences onto this question, but like, it was really frustrating to me leaving my community and my like community advocacy work and moving into like larger national spaces where I didn't know what some of these words meant. I didn't know what, excuse my language. I didn't know what the hell these people were talking about. And I was like, what are you saying? And it was so confusing and frustrating to for me to feel almost like looked down on um, for not knowing what was going on, but once I, once I knew what was going on, I had so much to say, and I had such great ideas to contribute, and so, um, yeah, I do think that there are young people who aren't traditionally knowledge, knowledgeable, um, but that doesn't mean that they don't have the fresh perspectives, and if I think, like, you know, if you want To have the the traditionally knowledgeable young people, there needs to be more work done to make sure that um, we're educating all young people, right, from, you know, young, poor folks, young, undocumented folks, um, people who have been incarcerated, right, like, making sure that all of these people have equal access to um, political education, Um, and they all have their fresh perspectives, they just don't all have that education, so... I think
0: that that is an incredible place to end our audience Q&A. Thank you to our audience members for all of your tremendous questions. I wish we could have gotten to all of them. I wish I could be in conversation with these panelists for another two hours. But before we officially wrap, it is our tradition here to ask all of our speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? So please share yours, and we will start with Tandiwe.
1: Um, I would just say, okay, I'm very inspired by all the mutual aid that we've been seeing uh, recently, especially since the pandemic. And so I just want to see a world where everyone, everyone's work and advocacy comes from a place of empathy and we all have this this view of like being in community with each other I see all of y'all as like an extension of myself and I want the best for you whether that means I I give you food if you're hungry I'll give you a ride to school if you don't have a ride you know like I just want to see a world where we can all just like truly care for each other and show up for each other um, in whatever ways we need each other to.
0: Incredible. Alex?
3: I'd say I love Javandi's idea, but since we've been talking about voting, all all of this panel, I'd say kind of my big thing would be kind of ending the two-party system. Because I feel like you, you have these two parties that are like the umbrella, right? You have everyone fitting inside them. When in reality, we see like all over the world, there's other systems that work that are still able to accurately represent people and laws are still able to be passed without needing to cram everyone in to two separate spaces. Otherwise, they don't really have a voice. So I definitely think, you know, there's no easy solution with that in our current system. But finding a way to really allow everyone to have their different opinions uh, and still be able to have uh, a voice and a vote is a really important step we need to take. Okay, yeah, uh, agreed with
2: everything that's been said. Uh, I'll once again take a step back and look at it from like a broader perspective. I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, like you know, one of the biggest barriers to youth voting is that young people are new to the democratic process and they kind of lack a proper orientation into our electoral system. So that idea is the basis for ask every student program, which uh, incorporates like one-on-one conversations about voting into college and university processes that touch every student. So uh, when we think about like making a difference in the world, like, you know, ask every student is an amazing concept, but what if we thought bigger, you know, uh, like, as I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, Founders didn't believe that borders should define our country, so we shouldn't let borders define our citizenship. Like, if we want to truly empower the next generation to address problems like climate change and economic inequality, like we need to indoctrinate them as global citizens, not just as Americans. So that's my uh, sixty-second idea. Other than please let me graduate. <laughs>
0: Thank you so, so incredibly much, Tutandhiwe, Abdullah, Alex Edgar, and Devence Kashik for joining me today at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. We'd also like to thank Levi Strauss and company for generously supporting this program. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Rainsford Stauffer. Thank you so much to our brilliant panelists and to our audience members watching, and we hope everyone stays safe. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org.